Hi, welcome to Careers in Automotive. I'm your host, Eddie Maunder. This podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Recruitment Solutions. They specialize in recruiting into the automotive, aerospace and defense sectors for both contract and permanent roles across the UK and Europe. For more information, check out their website, www.rtrs.co.uk. And now let's crack on with the podcast. Hi, welcome to Careers in Automotive. Today I'm joined by the MD of Zero Carbon Futures, Dr. Colin Heron, CBE. Thank you for joining me today, Colin. Good morning. Really Pleasure to join. Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And uh, where I always like to start is uh, how did you end up in the automotive industry? Was it, was it always the plan or, or how did it come about? It was a complete and utter accident. Um, <laughs> my, my school career was, could be summed up as a disaster. I went, I actually passed the old 11, bear in mind, I'm 64. Let's, let's get this out of the way. So I undertook my 11 plus a long, long time ago, which I passed. And I went to a technical school and there my career basically ended. Um, for some reason, my brain and school didn't connect. And I left with three O levels and I didn't even take A levels. I mean, that was the end of it. I went to the local job center I got sent to a local company where an apprentice had dropped out and I was the 12th apprentice. The fact that they were making crankshaft seals for engines, I had no idea. And in 1973, I entered the automotive industry. So, totally by accident. <laughs> so was, was that first role, was that when you were working out as a tool maker? Is that correct? Yes, I started as an apprentice on a full EITB. Three year, it was three years then, technical tr- apprenticeship, tool making, that was right. it. Right. And fr- from there, then you you did your tool make, uh, you worked as a tool maker for, for three years, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, did that get after that you went to university, I believe? Did, would, did working as a tool maker give you a taste for the industry? Like, how did that come about? Well, to be honest, there was in those days and as now, the apprentices always had what was basically the apprentice manager, the person who looked after the apprentices. And he said to me, You've got to go to college. So I said, okay. So they sent me to the local technical college and they put me on the lowest, lowest course to find out if I actually had a brain that functioned. (laughs) That then allowed me to do what was known as an ordinary national certificate, year one and year two, which was the precursor at the HNC, HND. So he made me go through those, which I passed them both. And then when I finished the apprenticeship, I was working what was known as week and week about, which was... Two weeks night shift, two weeks day shift, two weeks night shift, two weeks day shift. And at that point, I suddenly thought, do I really want to do this till I'm 65? Mm -hmm. The penny dropped and I had a word with the company and I said, I want to do something. And they said, okay. And I applied. It's Westminster University now. It used to be the Polytechnic of Central London. Mm -hmm. So I applied to do a higher national diploma down in London. And the reason I went to London was I met my now wife way back in 76, and she was going to train as a physiotherapist in London. So again, by accident, (laughs) I ended up in London doing an HND in mechanical engineering. And and, um, so the work that you did as a toolmaker, did you find that that helped you 
at university because you had that experience of working in within like a manufacturing and uh, production facility? Yes and no. The positive side was when we did all the practical things of understanding how machines cut and all that sort of thing, I was spot on. When it came to the maths, I was hopeless because I hadn't done A-level maths. I hadn't done O-level maths. So I had to do some self-teaching to catch back. And at that point, there was an awful dose of regret came upon me <laughs> of, not, of not applying myself at school. All right. So um, after you finished at university, then you went, you joined uh, George Angus in the quality department. Uh, so yep. what was your what was your role and responsibilities there straight out of university? Well, George Angus was the company I, I actually did the apprenticeship with. And I, I went it, right. back there and because I now had a qualification and I had some new skills, I was put into the quality department. So I was uh, I was the supervisor for a while. I had some staff and then they moved me up to a quality technician. And I used to do quality inspection, but it was the old tradition of um, production made what they could get away with and the quality department had to catch it. And that was basically, seriously, that's, that, that was the old mentality. It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. They would make as much as they can, as fast as they can, and hope it got past the inspectors because they were all on a piece rate. So the more yeah. you made, the more you got paid, regardless of what state it was in. Right. <laughs> and so did did it help you then that uh, obviously you'd worked there previously, then coming back into a different role, did that help you sort of settle into that position, do you think? It did, because I, I knew the product and I knew what, what was going on. And by then I'd known, I, I knew some of the scams as well. Yeah. So going away, I, I, I sort of understood what was going on. Being educated helped me really understand what was going on. And when I came back, I was aware very much of what was going on. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much so. So I can imagine. Uh, so a lot of the guys that, you know, on production line and, and things like that, that were trying to get stuff through, were those guys that you were working with previously before you went away? Well, fortunately, no, because I was working with the what was known as the craftsmen, the skilled people. Right. And then when I came back, I was monitoring the unskilled or semi-skilled. So yeah. it was a different group and a different mentality. Bearing in mind, I was in the union. This right. was union time. <laughs> yeah. There was complete demarcation, and you were skilled, semi-skilled, or unskilled. Mm-hmm. And you you had to, they, they behaved in that manner. Yeah, right, okay. And for young people now, they would not understand what British industry was like in the late 70s, mm-hmm. early 80s. Seriously, they would just not comprehend what it's like. So you move from a, a supervisor role, uh, your, well, your quality inspection uh, supervisor role, into a quality engineering position. Yeah. What was the main difference between those two roles, and, and did you enjoy the engineering side of it? Yeah, one of it <clears throat> went from the, the basic uh, production line uh, check and police parts. Yeah. What I started doing was preparing new samples, new products, dealing with customers, who would come in and I had to learn statistical analysis working for four they were the first ones to bring in statistical process control so I had to start learning those tools and techniques so it effectively took me off the shop floor into an office technical environment so that was the big change so I had to deal with management as opposed to um, surviving on the shop floor and and so you mentioned you were dealing with customers as well how did you find that um, for the first time <laughs> It was a revelation because um, it was 
it, you would get the reps from Ford and British Leyland or whoever it was at the time would come and visit. And people on the shop floor never met them. It mm -hmm. was it was upstairs, downstairs. That never happened. So I had to learn how to interact with, with customers, yeah. people who were paying the bills. <clears throat> yeah. That, that, that was a transition. Yeah, I can imagine. And so um, so obviously it sounds like, you know, you enjoyed your time there. Um, you're there for a, for a few years, I believe. And then from there, you moved to Thermal Syndicate as a senior quality engineer. So yeah. what, what brought that move on and how did that come about for you? Um, I was starting to question what was happening in the company I was in. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, and this might sound bizarre as well, in the realms of Amazon and de deliveries, they had these people called progress chasers. Yeah. What progress chasers meant was the customer would phone up who was very angry that they had no parts. And the progress chasers would literally run around the shop floor and negotiate with the supervisors to get those parts finished and out the door. <laughs> and at that point, my brain was saying, <clears throat> this is not sustainable. This is just madness. That production rate, the parts they want to make to earn the money, not what the customer wants when the customer wants it. I couldn't, I couldn't quite comprehend this. So I thought I'd have, to, I've got to move on and go somewhere else. And I went for two years. I left the automotive industry, two, three years. And I joined this company called Thermal Syndicate, which made quartz out of silicate, out of sand. Mm -hmm. So it was an old traditional company, but it was moving into fiber optics. Right. So it had equipment that made ultra high purity quartz, which was being used for fiber optics. So I went in there in a, a, a quality engineering senior role to put systems in. It was the British standard systems were just appearing then. And I had experience from automotive. So what this company needed was quality control systems put in. And that's what I did. And so you, you mentioned you were like a senior engineer then. Did you have like a team of people reporting into you or, or was it senior in terms of the level of responsibility? No, I, it was a level of responsibility, but I also had some inspectors who mm. were still doing a similar role to the role of the inspectors at George Angus. Right, no <laughs> problem. And so what was, was part of your job then with those inspectors to, to essentially change the mindset or anything like that? Or, or was it just a case of you did your thing and, and they did their thing? No, I tried to change the mindset and I tried to introduce them to new techniques and new methods. And some of it was the seniority, bringing in new ideas, the new use of statistics, that sort of thing. Brilliant. And, and how did they take to that then? Um, a young guy coming in, telling them you're doing it wrong and stuff like that. Some of them were absolutely brilliant. And they yeah. actually went on um, what would be called NVQ courses now for statistics. And they actually went through and I coached them going through it. Mm -hmm. And they, they actually loved understanding things. Some of them who were just the old traditional inspectors, you just had to let them come to the end of their time. They did. They were good at what they did. And you just had to let them do it. Yeah. No problem. So following on from your, uh, your your time there, you moved to Nissan, which is where you spent, uh, I think, the longest period of your career. And um, you initially started out in supplier quality. And obviously, SQA roles generally tend to require a lot of travel. Uh, was that something that appealed to you about it? Obviously, a big international company going in there, supplier role, get to see a few different countries or, or what made you move over, over to Nissan? Right. When I moved into this company, making quartz glass yeah 
my brain also found another interesting operational mode that I couldn't comprehend. The MD of this company measured success on the value of parts going into the warehouse. Right. So, so each of three plant managers got a pat on the back for the value of the parts that went into the warehouse. <laughs> and one day I asked the question of, do we ever monitor how much that cost to make and how yeah. much we sell it for? And the answer I got was, the price that we sell it for is up to the salesman. And I said, well, if the, sale, if the salesman doesn't know how much it costs to make, how could he set the price to sell it? That's his problem. And I thought, this is not going to survive. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to survive. And then when Nissan appeared, I thought, whoa, the Japanese, lean manufacturing, all this sort of thing. What if I take all my doubts and wonder if it is endemic through industry, this absolute chronic lack of management and understanding to apply for Nissan. Interestingly, two years after I joined Nissan, that company went bust and it was bought out. Oh, really? Yeah. So the reason I joined Nissan was I just wanted to learn. That that, that was it. The bottom line was, wow, this is the chance to learn. Nissan's don't open every year in the northeast of England. Yeah. And the, oh, anyway, for that matter. And when that opportunity came up, I just said, I'm going for it. This is it. Mm-hmm. When I got there, they now, this one thing to explain is that at Nissan, you have a job category, which yeah. is technician, engineer, whatever. If you go in at engineer grade, you can be posted anywhere. Right. Right. So I went in and they said, right. What are you good at? And I said, well, I've worked on quality systems, this, that. And you're like, right, you're in quality. <laughs> mm-hmm. If I said I was good at plastic molding, I would have been in the plastic <laughs> yeah. shop, right? So my career started because I had the qualifications, I had the attitude, and because of my background, I was just pigeonholed, you're in quality, you're in supplier quality. Mm-hmm. However, if I can just elaborate on that, this was a time when there was an agreement with the British government and the EU that a percent of the car had to have British origin. Right. 50%. So what what the rules were was the cars couldn't come in a box from Japan and be assembled. There was a transition phase where they had to become effectively 50% British. I think it was 80% at the time. So they needed people who were happy to get in a car and go anywhere in the UK to yeah, find yeah. suppliers that could do a dead copy of the Japanese part. Mm-hmm. And that's where the travel started. Right. So it was mainly UK travel, because I, I thought, did you not spend quite a bit of time? Did you not go over to Japan and places like that as, as part of the supplier quality role as well? Right. Well, what happened was the, um, the first priority was... Co- this classic old car called the Bluebird. Yeah. So the first priority was to get the Bluebird basically certified as a British car. At the same time, Japan were coming out with the replacement for the Bluebird, which was the first Primera. So in 1989, the way Nissan operates is they put, um, they don't ask people to do 
old work and new work at the same time. What they do is they take people off the job. Yeah. So they form a new model team from plastics, paint, press, engineering, quality, etc. Put them all in a room and you are the, the prototype team to bring the new model in. And of course, it grows and grows and grows. So in 1989, I was selected with another colleague from the quality department, and we were told, off to Japan. So in 1989, I went for my first visit for Japan. I was out there six weeks working in a plant, and that's where the Japanese travel came from. I've been out there 25 times over 30 years now. Um, but when we came back, because we changed with EU rules, we had to start finding suppliers in Europe as well. Hence, I was in Spain, Italy, Luxembourg, Germany. Oh, I was all over the place. And what? Uh, how did you find it dealing with people from different cultures and in different countries? Did you have to adjust the way that you acted and represented Nissan, or or was it was it pretty standard across the board with you guys being the customer? Well, <clears throat> now again, going back to my history. I am the son of a shipyard worker on the mm -hmm. Tyne. When I grew up, the only foreign people we ever met were the crews of the ships who yeah. were docked on the Tyne, who came to take their ship away. We never met anybody. So when I went to London to study, I, I got introduced to a lot of different cultures and different people. Yeah. When we went away, there was an expectation on us because the curiosity of traditional suppliers to Fiat and BMW was, what, what do these Japanese people want? And then one of the questions was, why are you not Japanese? Where's the Japanese? <laughs> you know, so, so we had to be trained to think and operate with Japanese systems. And we had to represent this new company. It was, it was a bit like Tesla is today. Yeah. Who's Tesla? What are they doing? Wow. When he, when he went in from Nissan, it, we had a great pride because we were the new, the future. We were not the, the history. So there was, there was actually a lot of expectation on us to perform above anybody else. So little things like we all didn't go out for lunch at lunchtime, which confused many people because the tradition was people were taken to the pub for lunch, this, that, and the other. And we wouldn't touch alcohol during the day. We wouldn't go out for lunch. Mm -hmm. And that completely baffled the French. Right. Completely baffled them mm -hmm. that we didn't want to go to the restaurant and have food. But just bring us some sandwiches and we'll just work through. So we, we, there, was a lot of, there was a lot on us to represent this new wave, this new thinking, this new culture. Right. Really interesting, that actually. And uh, so moving on from, from quality then, you, you moved into production engineering after that. Um, first, was that something that was kind of you, you were pushed down that route or was it something that you decided you wanted to experience uh, another another department? Um, this is Nissan operating again. Yeah. I came in on the Monday morning and I said, oh, your desk's moved. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're now in engineering, production engineering. So I went to production engineering and they said, what bits have you been looking after in quality? And I said, well, chassis and this, that and the other. That's what you're looking after now. You're on new model development, engine bays, and um, the front end of the vehicle. So I got the responsibility for the fit and function of the entire front end of the new Primera, the back end of the Primera, and the engine bay safety, yeah. of which I knew nothing about. <laughs> yeah. so, 
I had this Japanese guy called Kumi appeared, and Kumi was my teacher. And we worked together like brothers for, oh, I, I used to go to Japan and visit his wife and his daughter, and he used to come to my house. And we just learned that way. So was it quite a steep learning curve then moving into that area or, or did you, obviously uh, production engineering can involve quite a lot of uh, like lean methodologies and, and things like that. Something that it sounds like you're quite passionate about. So was it something that you, you felt you settled into quite quickly or is that where you really de- like developed a passion for lean manufacturing within that, that sort of area? It was a bit of both. Um, once, once you go into new model development and you understand how the Japanese build a car mm-hmm. and how the production have to balance the production of the car. So just in a nutshell, every 58 seconds, a car appears. It could be left-hand drive, right-hand drive, SLX, LX. It could have anything in it. And it has to be built. But you can't send five 4x4 four four GTs in a row because there's too much work in them. So you have to balance a low spec, a high spec, et cetera. Yeah. That's the, that was the introduction to lean manufacturing. Well, I didn't know it was lean manufacturing because the Japanese just did it. Yeah. We called it lean manufacturing. So I was doing something that I didn't know I was doing. Right. I realized what I was doing. So I had to learn. And the pressure with, with the Nissan plant was, this plant was going to be a role model that the British could do and were going to do it. So failure was not an option. Yeah. You had to attend meetings at night and meetings in the morning, which some of them were quite brutal if you're missing targets. And you had to have countermeasures. You had to learn how to problem solve. And it was long hours. It was massively long hours, hugely rewarding, but very pressurized. So you had to learn quickly. So I was learning quickly, but it wasn't until I got... Um, up to speed on what I was doing, that I realized I was doing lean manufacturing. Yeah. So the first few years was just head down, having to learn systems, methodologies, and get up to speed. And once I was up to speed, I had time to think. And then you start to realize and look around and see what's happening. Okay, brilliant. So obviously within production engineering, you you seemed really to settle in there. You you were in production engineering for about 10 years. Yeah. Um, what was the highlight of your time throughout, throughout that 10-year period, would you say, in the department? The, well, one of the highlights was um, during that time, there was, there was two spells because the, the, I actually got shifted to production engineering purchase because buyers, this is where I go into the lean manufacturing. So I'll just do the little drift into that. There was a, a situation where there was a they wanted to take cost out the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So we put a suggestion scheme and we developed a team and we, we actually took millions of pounds out. It was it was really good what we did. And then I started to become aware of the fact that Nissan were having big problem with suppliers. So what they developed was known as the supplier development team. And what this team did was it went to suppliers and free of charge, it would introduce the supplier to the techniques that made the plant so lean. So I had to be trained in all these techniques. So I went through a training course. I went to Japan. I went to Japanese suppliers to understand what the lean techniques were. And then we had to be trained in how to run activities at the supplier. And that was tremendously rewarding to to meet operators in factories in Coventry 
some of which management had never spoken to for years. They were just given a job and told to knock it out. Yeah. And we were running activities with them and they were having their voice set. And we were, you know, 20% productivity improvement was really easy in these plants. And it was incredibly rewarding. I worked with a wonderful group of people and we used to go out. We went all over the UK and Europe and we used to run these activities. It was about this point when I was becoming um, aware that I was on a cycle of this car, then the next car, then the next car. So I decided it was time to do a little bit more education. So I asked Nissan if they would support me do a master's degree with the Open University, of which they paid 80% and 20% was salary sacrifice. Oh, that's good. So I did manufacturing management and technology. And one of the great things about Nissan was it was such a big plant. I call it up here the sixth sixth university. Yeah. Because everything I did in cast, all the technology I went through in this course, I either had a supplier that did it or or Nissan did it. Mm -hmm. So I, I was very fortunate. So I went through the masters with Nissan as well. Oh, brilliant. And so it sounds like obviously it's uh it really helped you then the fact that you're at Nissan while you were doing it with their with their network of suppliers and the work that they did. I mean, obviously, you know, you, while you was in the purchasing department, you it sounds like you know you you worked in a variety uh, alongside production and quality, you worked in a variety of different areas of the business. As as your career sort of progressed over the years, what was the advantages to you being of working in so many different areas of the business, would you say, rather than just focusing on quality from start to finish within your career? Once once you move into... All, all big corporations are split into the future and the now. Mm-hmm. And even some look at the past. Where did we go wrong, etc. Once you move into purchase and you're working with the design department... yeah you're no longer working on what the plant is making. Mm-hmm. You're now working on what the plant could make or will make in the future. You could even be working on a part that another plant is going to make. So I was working on with UK suppliers on components that went to the Spanish plant. So moving into the purchase meant also this is a big learning curve. The people who have the profile of buyers and the people who have the profile in the design department are not the same personality traits as engineers and supervisors in the plant. And I had to learn that because we would go to the design as a group of engineers and we just went down full on adrenaline and shouted at them. (laughs) You know, why, why is this wrong? Sort this out. I need this. I need that. Because that was the world we lived in. It's not their world. So one of the things I had to learn was, and it was among suppliers and it was different cultures, is that in every big corporation, the people you deal with are not all the same. Okay. Okay. And so obviously you stayed at Nissan for a very long time, as we mentioned earlier, I think the longest period throughout your career. What was it about Nissan that, that you enjoyed so much and that kept you there so long, do you think? It's a university of knowledge. It never stood still. <clears throat> and to be honest, I could have, there's seven plants there. I could have, as an engineer, I could have worked in um, body shop, robotics, castings, moldings, paint, engines, batteries. I could have worked all over the place. And some of my 
my peer group did. They just continually learned new things. So that was the, that was the advantage. It just changed all of the time. And we would get, you know, visits. So I had to maintain my knowledge because we would get visits from universities, et cetera, and different questions. And new technology came in all of the time. Yeah. So it was, a, it was an ongoing, um, it, was, it was just ongoing learning. However, I'd re I reached the point with the master's degree where I thought I need a top up. I need to do something else. Mm -hmm. Okay, brilliant. So that that brings us on nicely then to the uh, to the next stage of your career. So af after Nissan, you joined uh, One Northeast. Initially, was that initially on a two year secondment from uh, from Nissan, I believe, and then then moving there permanently? Yeah. What what happened in the region was the the whole of the UK had a period of offshoring products. It was the obsession that everything could be bought cheaper in Morocco and all over the world. Mm -hmm. So in regions, a lot of smaller companies suffered and jobs were being lost. So the Northeast region wanted to create a funded group of research and productivity that would help companies offset the price difference by introducing efficiency. <clears throat> and what Nissan offered was its IP on lean manufacturing. Yeah. So some of us were took into a room and the offer was made that you could go on this secondment and support the region. I was, I was pulled in and I was said, because of what you're doing, there's a project for you. We want you to go and work with regional government and do this. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. Mm, sounds it. In parallel, the, the, the region was also sponsoring six people to go through a PhD on various productivity and design topics into the supply chain. When Nissan outlined what I was going to do, I actually came back and said, I think there's a PhD in here for me as well. Yeah. How to transfer Nissan's lean manufacturing techniques into any industry making any product. And Nissan, bless them, said, yeah, okay. Yeah. So I said, well, let me think about this. You want me to go away and work in regional government for three years, and you're going to pay for my PhD? And they said, yes. So I said, give me two seconds to think about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going. <clears throat> so that's how I ended up. And the, the regional development agencies were set up by the then Labour Party, where there was nine in the country. Yeah. And what they were responsible for was the economic development. And once I got in there, um, after a while, I realized that this was another world of civil servants, ministers, public duty, so much to learn yeah. that I came with a mutual agreement with Nissan that I would leave Nissan and I would join the government side of it. And I was also getting conflicted because the government had grants and Nissan was applying for grants and I was yeah. a Nissan employee. <laughs> Work and it, it was a bit messy. Mm -hmm. So I joined. I joined the public service. Okay. And so, in terms of um, you know, you've talked a little bit about it there, but what were your overall responsibilities as part of that role? Then, what I did was I created with some other people. I was a, a responsible for the the largest public sector lean manufacturing project there's ever been. And what we did was we went to some of the top companies, the Nissan's, Komatsu's. Rolls-Royce, all the big ones. And what we did was we seconded 
some bright young people into this group. We also used a national body called the Industry Forum, and we standardized the lean methodology that we used. And then we sent these people out all over the region to implement change and train people underpinned by qualifications from a local college. It was a great system. Thousands got NBQs in basic lean manufacturing. We, we recorded some fantastic productivity improvements. And a lot of these people who we trained are still working in big corporations doing process improvements. So that, that's what I started doing. But then because of my background, I became the regional head for all automotive and manufacturing matters in the Northeast. So I used to go and visit with government, the other eight RDAs around the country and agree productivity programs, initiatives, et cetera. Okay, brilliant. And, you know, when I was looking through um, through your achievements there, you, you had some amazing achievements. Can you just talk us through some of the like the highlights for you personally from working in that role and, and the stuff that you achieved with it? The, the big highlights were, um, one was the, the project we created. The It was called the Northeast Productivity Alliance. And I managed through that, that got me, with my PhD work into the academic world. Yeah. So I started on the shop floor. I ended up in Nissan traveling around the world. I then moved into the public sector. I then moved into the academic world. Now the academic world and Nissan are so far apart. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Not in intelligence, just method of operation. So one of the highlights for me, again, was I had to learn how to think like an academic and how to think like a public servant, which was completely different to everything I'd had. It was almost parking everything in manufacturing and starting again. Because of that, I was then starting to apply some of the knowledge I had to these new techniques. So I managed to get some great grants, um, millions of pounds for companies in the region by understanding what they wanted to say because many companies do not have the ability to write in public sector speak yeah what i learned was how to translate what they wanted so that they could get the money they needed so one of them was i mean we raised about 25 million for this big local initiative and we were recognized in europe we got um, funding for two big European projects, which involved Newcastle University and Sunderland University. I then went on with them to help write um, a master's degree, a brand new master's degree, a foundation degree. So I was starting to branch out and do many things. So that was the highlight, was just being introduced to different thinking, different people. Brilliant. And in terms of the uh, the university work, that's something that we'll, uh, we're definitely going to come on to a little bit later in a bit more detail. But um, in terms of your, your career from like your, your actual day to day working job, although, you know, the university work, I'm quite sure it takes up a lot of your time. Uh, but in 2011, you joined um, Zero Carbon Futures as the MD. Yep. Am I right in saying like that was around the time that the organization was founded, wasn't it, in 2011? Well, that was... <laughs> I, when I was at the Regional Development Agency, it was an important thing happened. And I'll explain the transition to what where we went. Yeah. I was um, about 2009. I was in a pub in Newcastle and I met a civil servant. 
who was talking about this strange concept of an electric car. Now, mm -hmm. I hadn't heard anything about this. I, I knew Nissan were doing something in the past. Yeah. And then it began a two-year, really strange period of my life where because of my contacts with Nissan, my understanding of the public sector, I ended up with a, a, a senior person at the RDA effectively as a go-between the British government and Nissan in Japan. So for two years, I was helping negotiate bringing the Nissan Leaf to the UK and the battery plant. So we're talking millions, probably mm -hmm. half a billion in investment in about 500 jobs. Yeah. This was going really well, and the announcements were made that Nissan was going to build the Leaf in Sunderland and the battery plant, <clears throat> and then Gordon Brown lost the election. Mm -hmm. And they announced they were going to close all the regional development agencies, and that was the end of it. So I had a team of people. We had the car, we had the battery, and we actually had a project to put the first regional infrastructure in. And, it, that, and basically, that was the end of it. It just all closing redundancy. So I went to a local college who had done all the training for the Lean Project and said to them, I think it's a good idea if we come into your college, we can bring a bit of money with us and we can develop training and help with the apprentices on the new technology. So in 2011, I was taken on, and that was the start of Zero Carbon Futures. That was it. So we created it, and we brought some people with us, and we had a loan from the college to set it up of about £50,000, and that was the start of a new venture. So I went to running a company. It wasn't my company. It was their company. Mm -hmm. But I went from being staff to having staff and the responsibility of bringing money and projects in. And how did you find that then? The you know obviously you've been involved in a lot of securing funding and things like that in your in your previous role at One Northeast, but essentially now the responsibility solely lies with you, or, or well maybe not solely with you, but you know it's ultimately you're the guy at the top that's overseeing all this. How did it, how did that change in responsibility affect you, and, and how did you adjust to that? At first, you don't realise it because you. If Unless you've been doing some basic accountancy and some basic understanding, which I hadn't, it became quite a shock when yeah. you start to look at actual costs, real costs. And bear in mind, we didn't have a finance system. We didn't have a job recording sheet. We didn't have any paperwork for bidding. We didn't have any pro formas. We suddenly realized that actually we had nothing. It was just a group of people in a room and we had to build a small company to operate and be profitable, which meant we had just had to learn and we had to get our skills together. We made mistakes. But what we did have was a reputation. And we decided if we built a reputation, unlike Nissan, we always delivered on time, yeah. we, would, we would win business. And we did. Brilliant. And you, you know, once again, there's a lot of different projects that, that you've worked on and a lot of different funding secured and work yeah. with the government that you've done while you've been there. Can you talk us through a few few of the different projects you've been involved in that, that you've really enjoyed? I'm sure you've enjoyed them all. But. <laughs> yes, well, once we completed the job of putting infrastructure in the northeast of England, uh, we got a contract to oversee 
putting charge points in all the motorway services of the UK mm-hmm. with um, Nissan and uh, Ecotricity. Coming out of that, we got involved in a major European project with BMW, Volkswagen, Renault and Nissan. So that meant we had to start working in headquarters in Munich and Wolfsburg and Paris with these big companies. And sometimes they were a little surprised as to why they were dealing with six people in Sunderland and not yeah. Ernst and Young or Arab or somebody. <laughs> but they got used to us and we, we worked really well. What we found, what that then brought was we had a, a high level of experience and we'd been in from the start and we were still connected to Nissan and Renault and people like that. So we then got more contracts to put more in and we start to learn more about the product. And one of the things in business that we did learn is whatever your first skill is, other people will learn how to do it. So we majored on the fact that nobody had put infrastructure in before and nobody understood the equipment. Very quickly, construction companies and people learned how to put infrastructure in. Yeah. So we had to change our direction. So we then um, got involved in another big European project about second life use of batteries, where we got one of the academies and we put all Nissan Leaf batteries and we connected them up to solar power. That was another interesting project. We worked on um, dual fueling a Nissan Qashqai where we ran it on hydrogen and diesel. We did some of the things we did were a little bit of fun, some were yeah. real. The the next thing that I did, which was sort of the icing on the cake, was we started to deliver a two-day master's training course on everything you want to know about electric vehicles. And a few years ago, there was a chap on the course in London from the Greater London Authority. And a little bit after that, we got invited to quote to facilitate the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan's entire EV task force for all of London. Yeah. Which you can imagine for six or seven people sitting in an <laughs> office in Sunderland was a bit of curiosity of why would they write to us in Sunderland mm-hmm. with all the consultants they've got in London. It turns out that the guy who recommended us was the guy off the course. Right. The one thing it learns is no matter who you're dealing with, you never know fully who you've got in your audience. So always treat every audience the same and with respect Mm -hmm. because this person worked directly for Sadiq Khan. We put a price in and we ended up facilitating the biggest task force in London with vice presidents of Shell and all sorts on it. And I was the facilitator and we ran major workshops with up to a hundred people in and we facilitated writing the report. Wow. And, (laughs) I've got a, a personal letter from Sadiq Khan thanking me and my colleague for the work we did. So that was the sort of pinnacle of um, the current work that we're doing, being quite honest. We've also written, a, because of our public sector knowledge, we learned how to write bids. So we've actually facilitated some very big bids for Nissan, Nissan's battery plant and other customers where we have written a bid and we project manage. And because we've had to project manage, we've had to understand them. And we've got involved with some fantastic universities, Brunel, and then we moved on and we've been working with Warwick as well, as well obviously, as Newcastle and others. And then 
Because of all of this contact and what we've been doing, we then got involved with non-governmental organizations such as the Faraday Institution, Mm-hmm. which is the premier one for developing batteries. We work yeah. with the Advanced Propulsion Centre. Mm-hmm. I've still got my contacts in Bayes. So I've been attending conferences in Japan, or wherever been, Taiwan, Japan, Malaysia, America, all over with, with the government because of my knowledge of the car industry supporting them. Yeah. Okay. So for a small group, were were fairly influential. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I was having a look through the uh, through the website, and um, obviously I was reading through the the projects, the values, and things that you've been involved in, and um, to see it's a very small, close knit team that you guys have got there, but obviously working on stuff that's really shaping the the future of UK automotive industry, and not even just the yep. UK industry. So it's uh, yeah, really great stuff. But uh, just, just wanted to jump back onto the educational side of things again. So something mm-hmm. that you touched on a little bit earlier was um, that you were you were involved in developing the uh, the foundation and master's degree. I believe was it at Sunderland University. Sunderland, yeah, yeah. So so you touched on it briefly, but could you tell us how that came about and what was actually involved in developing those courses? I. One of the things that we did, obviously, when we have funding, we wanted outputs. And yeah. one of the things we noticed was in automotive, there, because, believe it or not, the Northeast was never an automotive centre. No. So, and in a lot of places, we, I believe that the training courses were not reflective of modern techniques and what was happening. So the foundation degree was in lean manufacturing. It was to enable people above inspectors to progress in their companies. So when the foundation degree came out, it was seen as a mechanism to allow people to do more what an HND, HNC used to do, but there was nothing available which was up to date. So what I had to do was sit down with people who could write courses at the university and then go through how a module's put together how a module's evaluated, how it has to hit certain quality criteria. All of this, all of this absolutely unknown to me. So you had to go through these bit by bit by bit. So I helped say, well, you need this material in, you need to do that. And they, they would say, yes, but it has to be at this level. It can't go to this level. The maths has to be here. There has yeah. to be this amount of course content. All of this was fascinating. And then they said they wanted to do a master's in automotive uh, because Sunderland were targeting Nissan engineers like I was who'd done a first degree and wanted to do more. So I I then did exactly the same process with a master's degree, but I had to learn the difference. Um, And and I'm trying to remember if I'd started my master's or not. I think, yes, I had. So I used the experience I had going through my master's degree to help write the one at Sunderland. Mm-hmm. And it was just another learning curve where I have to, I, I've always worked on the logic. I, I'm here. I've got knowledge of the subject, but I, I don't know how to put a degree together. I'll yeah. help with the knowledge. You show me what you tell me what you want. How long did it take to, to put, does it take to put like a university course like that together? I'd imagine it's quite a long a process. At least a year. At least a year, yeah. yeah. But it's something that must fun. be something very rewarding and, and a legacy that you're leaving leaving behind as well within that university. 
Um, so also you're involved in quite a bit of work with Newcastle University. Uh, you've touched on that a little bit as well. Uh, could you talk us through what you do there? Yes, it was uh, it was a tremendous honour and surprise one day when uh, I got a letter asking me to be a visiting professor, which which for a shipyard worker's son who used to walk through Newcastle and look at the university, mm-hmm. who was an abject failure, to get a letter asking me to do that. And yeah. I said, yeah, what is this? What do you want to do? <laughs> yeah. What is a visiting professor? And it was explained that I'd, by now I completed the PhD, I finished when I was 50. So one guide to everybody, you're never too old do something mm-hmm. so i completed the phd in just before my 50th birthday what the universities have to do now is they have to show impact they can't just do pure research so the, the, there's a thing called the res the research evaluation where a lot of their ranking comes from demonstrable impact within industry so the smart universities get hold of lots of people who are academically qualified, but they work in industry and bring them in. So I'm on their industrial engagement board for engineering. Mm-hmm. What that means is they bring all sorts of people in on a regular basis. They go through the curriculum. They go through how they do internships. They go through all that sort of thing and consult industry and people who know the public sector, etc. And they start designing the courses of the future and etc which is really good on the other side because of my experience i can now talk as i said i work in the public sector etc that i give lectures in the business school yeah on the business side of what we've been doing and introducing new market products i also work on the transport side i also work in chemical and i work in engineering so I do a lot of work, which is liaison between big industry and the university uh, in the visiting professor role. I also do some lectures in there, and I'm part of their alumni structure. So some last year, it was simply go to a hotel and where all these PhD students are and just give them a talk like this on my career, what I've learned, and just take questions. Brilliant. And you were actually voted the winner of the annual uh, Illumini Impact Award uh, at Newcastle University. So what yeah. was involved in winning this? Ha, I hadn't to do anything, actually. I was oh, really? They have lots of categories for, as most universities do at the end of the year, which is for the best student, the best this, the best that. And they've, they've got two Illumini Awards. One is the Rising Star. Yeah. Somebody who's gone off and just is creating something. And one was the Impact Award, which was a reflection of their career, the work they've done with the university and the impact they've had outside of the university. And basically somebody had written down everything I've told you to date. Mm-hmm. And that went in and I was told I was shortlisted. And then I, unfortunately I would have went to a nice dinner, but it, it was on Facebook because of COVID. Oh, unfortunately, that, but you got the award and that's the main thing again. So obviously you've been very involved in um, in the education system and you, and you still are. Uh, the biggest challenge that, you know, when I'm speaking to different companies and, and what they feel is 
as we move towards electrification, there's a lot of new roles becoming like coming up within the automotive industry. Um, do you foresee there being a skill shortage over the next five or 10 years where um, as we move towards like a, a zero carbon future? I've, I've done some skills reports for some of the government organizations. And one of the things that I'm, I'm very aware of is that electricity is going to be a key in the future. It's going to be a great move to um, electric heating in homes, transportation, etc. A lot of mechanical engineers are going to have to get their textbooks open again, and they're going to have to start reading up. But they don't need; they just need to understand safety and what is important, and what on earth a kilowatt is, and a kilowatt hour is, what the difference is. So. I've got every confidence that technicians and engineers can skill up, but we ha- we will have to start producing a lot of primary electrical engineers and researchers if we're going to compete in the modern world, especially on batteries and battery chemistry. Mm. We That is the future. There's no denying it. We have to go down that route. And for young people, the career routes in business of working out new business models for um, utilities and energy sales, energy balance, that's, uh, that's the future. Whether we've got enough engineers to do it, I'm not sure. My concern as ever is that if, if the UK wants to attract, say, four gigafactories at the same time, and all of them want 3,000 staff, Mm-hmm. And all of them want 300 electrical engineers. Either we've got a lot of electrical engineers sitting around, which I don't think we have, or they're going to poach from other industry and suffer, other industry may suffer. Mm-hmm. It's yet to play out, but all the reports I've seen from the IET, who I volunteer with, is that we do have a shortage and we really need to start producing engineers in large numbers mm. yeah i definitely agree with you i think uh you know it's already starting to see that from obviously i work on the recruitment side of things and i'm already starting to see that especially you know electrical engineers as you know the there's a lot of um companies as well like you mentioned where there's rumors of gigafactories being set up and things like that and it's a case of yeah. especially on the chemistry side of things and it's a case of you know there's a lot of battery manufacturers but maybe not automotive battery manufacturers in the uk obviously there's a few but uh it's going to be interesting times anyway over the next few years and i am uh, looking forward to see how it uh, how it plays out uh, so i just wanted to um before we go a bit more into the industry side of things and and what's going on at the moment in the future there's one thing that um you know i mentioned at the very start of the podcast but in june 2018 uh, you were appointed cbe for services to business and renewable energy so obviously that's something you must be extremely proud of. Um, I'm sure your family are as well. How did you, how did this come about? How'd you become a CBE? It's a, uh, it's a black, it's a black, black art on this. <laughs> Cause I, I had to reverse engineer to try and work out what happened to, to be quite honest. I got a letter through the door from the cabinet office. Yeah. And it has Frank, franked on the front, basically to the postman, a sign which says, you will deliver this, you will not lose it. Yeah. And, it, you know, the postcode, the whole lot. 
And my wife said, what's this? And I said, I don't know. And because of the clandestine work I'd done on the leave, she said, are you in trouble? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I, I don't know. So I opened it, and it was a letter from the Prime Minister, the Cabinet Office. And it said, and yeah, I scanned through it. You think, what on earth is this? And I saw the words, um, Order of the British Empire. And I said to my wife, I said, I've got an OBE. And then on the second form where you fill in, you want to accept it, it had CBE. So I went back and I'd missed the word which said commander, yeah. order of the British Empire. <laughs> so then you go on Google and say, well, well what is that? Then you find out it's the British Empire medal, then the MBE, then the OBE, then the CBE, then it's SIRS. Mm. And, uh, it becomes quite unreal yeah. going back to the shipyard boy. And I said, I've got a CBE. <laughs> the way it works is that other people or institutions nominate a person, mm-hmm. not for a medal. They, you are nominated. It then goes into the regional public sector to find out, is this a genuine nomination? Is this person real? Are they known? Should this be progressed? It then goes to the civil service in London, and they look at it to see if they know the people and it should be progressed. There are then secret committees for business, for the arts, for all sorts of things where these nominations go in. And it might be, well, it's it's really good, but not yet, and it gets yeah. thrown out. Or, yes, this person's reached the age, they've got this, this, and this, they're in the pot. And then, as with all grades of exams, they go through the pot and they may have 20 people in for business and whatever. And then they segregate them into what level. Mm-hmm. Who's in that group? I don't know. When was that done? I don't know. I did manage to collar one of the civil servants I know at an event. And I said, did you know about this? And he said, well, something did come across my desk and I did put a tick in the box. <laughs> and that's all I know. That's mm-hmm. all I know. And then you accept it. And then it's, but the hardest bit is you cannot tell anybody until right. mine was the Queen's birthday honors. Yeah. Until 10.30 of the night before the official birthday. That's when it goes <laughs> in the press. So I went to a restaurant with my daughter, my mother-in-law, and none of them knew, neither of them knew <laughs> why I was there. So the only people you can tell are the day before is your press office, if you're a big corporation, mm-hmm. so that they're prepared with a press release. Well, other than that, you can't tell anybody. So how, how does it work? Do you have to go... Do you, do you like go down to London or anything, or is it a case of it's just announced and, and you're you're then a CBE? It's announced, and as soon as it's announced, you're a CBE, but then you go to London and you go to meet, as I did, Prince Charles. Oh, fantastic. What so, a day. <laughs> <laughs> so you're allowed to take um, to three guests, so both daughters and wife went. Yeah, and the the, um, the the great thing is, well, for me, because you when you go to the palace, you're sort of segregated between MBEs, OBEs, and CBEs and SIRs. Mm-hmm. So I was in a small room with twelve people, which included Kenny Dalglish, <laughs> Joe Malone, the designer, Tom Hardy, the actor, and we were just standing, just having an apple juice together, just having a chat. Oh, and then wow. we went all together. <laughs> so Tom Hardy was in front of me because it's H A and yeah. my name's H E. 
Yeah. So Tom Hardy were wandering through and chatting, and he went up to the prince. Then I went to the prince and got the got the medal. Wow, what a day! <laughs> well, congratulations on that. Anyway, like I say, some achievements, and that leads me on to my next question. Actually, obviously, you've had such an amazing career. Um, you know, we've talked through it now, uh, up to date. And what what do you what do you put your success down to? Because it sounds like you know, coming out of school, you maybe didn't do as well as you could have done, and you you weren't um, you know, maybe not didn't look like you, you'd maybe have the future that you had when you when you look back over the years. The key thing that I've done in all my time is never, ever refuse an opportunity. Never refuse an opportunity. If even when I was at school or whatever, if they said, oh, we need a volunteer to go, I'll go. <clears throat> if Nissan said we need, I'll go. Yeah. I just went. Some things don't work for you, but what you have to do is become personable to other people and you have to deliver what you're asked to deliver that that that's the main thing i found always try something have a go at something because you never know you just might like it yeah. it might just open the door it might just do something and then do as many different things as possible because the cbe was a culmination of all the different things I'd done, the bit in the education, the, the Nissan battery plant, all this sort of thing comes together. So for me, and any advice I would give to people is try things. Do not, and there, <laughs> there is a phrase which I came to, if you put it, it's called Goya. Mm -hmm. Get off your ass. <laughs> Love it. Right. And I've learned that. And the, the Japanese would say, why, why, why? You know, five times. Why is this broken? But mm -hmm. why? But why? But why? And it ground you down until you had to find something. Yeah. And the, a lot of the print, they call it Gemba, real time, real place. We call it Goya. Get off your arse and go and do something. Yeah. And that's what I keep saying to all the students when I talk to them is, don't be shy. Ask people for help. It's interesting, I, you know, I give a lecture and at the end is normally one come up and say, I've got my master's dissertation to do. Will you help me? Of course I will. But it's interesting, another 20 in the room don't. One person comes up and says, will you help me? Yeah. So I'll talk to them. I say, yeah, of course I'll help you. Yeah. It's, go, it's talk to people and don't, be, don't ever think you know everything. Will always be in the position as I do. There's some of the profs at the university. I'll phone up and I'll say, I've got a really stupid question. I don't want to know the mathematics of how this chemical works. Just tell me what it's there for. Yeah. That's all I need to know. Now I can do something, but I will phone anybody anywhere and ask a question. Brilliant. Okay. And so I just want a couple of, um, cover off a couple of questions now about the uh, the automotive industry and the the area that we're heading yep. so as we move towards a, a zero emissions future what do you think the biggest challenge facing the uk automotive industry is over the next five to ten years the honest answer to this is not the electrification it's probably going to be the fallout of brexit as to whether or not we have what we call our automotive industry 
And unfortunately, our automotive industry is not our automotive industry. We, we make cars on behalf of other people who make decisions in other cities around the world. Leaving that to one side, assuming that the car industry stays roughly the size it is, the big challenge is that the investment which is required. So unfortunately, we make an awful lot of engines, about 2.7 million engines a year, I think it is, and engines are going to have to be decommissioned. So the Toyota engine plant, the Nissan engine plant, Ford Bridge End are already closing, the Hams Hall plant for BMW, <clears throat> and these have to be replaced by the new technology, which is going to be battery plants. By and large, where the battery plant is, is where the car plant will be, or where the car plant is where the battery plant will be. So the interesting question against people like Peugeot and Toyota is, are they going to open battery plants next to their French plants and make the EVs in the French plants, or are they going to invest uh, or ship batteries all the way to the UK? Shipping batteries is always problematic anyway. So that's the challenges we've got. There is always, as I said, the, the separation between the established car companies and the emerging car companies. There's always going to be niche, there's motorsport, but there's lots of small companies opening up now which are going to do bespoke. So mining equipment, buses, uh, ambulances, all kinds of niche vehicles have to become electrified. And the internal combustion engine's not dead yet. There will still be some hybrid versions, plug-in hybrid versions going forward. So the, the car industry is at a turmoil of climate change, which is forcing it to change, legislation change, which is the fines that are coming out in Europe for fleet average CO2, but it's also been hit by uncertainty of Brexit. Um, if I could go forward five years, I'd love to do that to see what we'll have, but I'm not sure what we'll have. I think some of the car companies will be on the cusp and there'll be questions as to whether they will survive. And if they do survive, what will they be making? Can I just also say that if some of the car companies have laid down platforms now for vehicles, they won't be electrified for a little while. So I'm a bit nervous of the government's ban all ICA vehicles because in some instances, I don't think they understand the concept of a platform change that you can't just make a diesel car of whatever it is electric overnight you can't do that you have to change the platform it's expensive and it needs to be done so there's going to be a big change a big phase in a big phase out with technology but i think the big word on all of this quite frankly is uncertainty mm -hmm. so that leads me on to my next question you've touched on a few of the companies there so the UK is in quite an unusual spot at the moment when you mention, you know, like Ford closing, Honda's closing down. Obviously, we've got Brexit, um, yep. you know, redundancies due to COVID and how long it's going to take to bounce back for that. But that's obviously a global, uh, more of a global scale. But then there's on the positive side, you've got, you know, the, the investment coming in from companies such as, you know, uh, flat funding from places like the APC. You've got companies like Yasa Motors, Arrival that are doing really well. Lotus is growing. Uh, and obviously the giga plants um, that are on the horizon, your giga factories from like uh, Ampty Power and British Vault down in South Wales and a couple of others as well that there's rumours about. How do you feel about the UK, UK automotive industry at the moment? Are you positive about going forward or does that uncertainty make you feel a little bit more pessimistic? 
I've got, uh, depends which day it is and what time of the day it is. <laughs> I'm, be, I'm being absolutely honest. Um, I, I see in, in my region, there's, there's two other small companies, Hyperdrive, who are working with Hitachi yep. to put batteries into um, trains. They're already putting them in JCB diggers. We've got Avid who do heavy equipment and they're doing their own work. Yep. And we've got, we've got lots of companies coming forward. I think we're going to have a big split between the pioneers with the new technology, which are going to be sold to bigger companies. And we've got the existing. And as I saw when the ship industry disappeared, the ship industry provided a lot of employment for a lot of people. And the car industry does that. If we lose that sort of industry, we have a social problem of a lot of people who are not computer programmers or robot programmers. And they're, they've, they're really successful if they're actually working on a production line, which pays them well and they can afford a mortgage and they can afford a home. Mm -hmm. So we have a social challenge as well. The pure economists in London don't see the need for a car industry because as far as they're concerned, if a person can buy a car cheaper from France, why are we making it? That's the pure economic. The other side is but because that person goes to a corner shop and buys a newspaper, which keeps the corner shop going, etc. There's a lot of questions to be asked on manufacturing in general, not just the car industry and on what the government advisors believe we should be doing. So I'm really optimistic when I see what the APC is doing, what Faraday Institution's doing on batteries and what the local companies are doing and the other ones I hear about, that's really good. But I, I fear for the bulk. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's what that's what worries me. I was I wasn't surprised when Honda went. My next nervous one will be Toyota. I know they've got a, a plant in northern France. I don't know what capacity it's running at, but they're going to have to make a decision at some point if they do make alternatively few vehicles do they make them in Berniston or do they make them in France? Mm -hmm. And I think with the way they the whole market is suppressed there's a lot of spare capacity out there yeah i mean even you know not not on the electric vehicle field but you know ineos automotive who who had sort of um committed to building plant a plant in bridgen for their four by four the grenadier it's looking like now they're going over to france as well rather than staying in the uk which is which isn't great and you know i think my concern is is a lot more like you say with the larger companies that have been here for a long time. I think in terms of innovation and smaller companies, you know, like your Yasses, your arrivals, more specialist, um, specialist vehicle companies, I see a really bright future, but then it's just the knock-on effect if some of these bigger companies do go abroad. And and that's my my personal concern. But we'll just have to see yeah. how it plays out. But um I mean, Two SMEs with a hundred people in each do not equate well, exactly fifteen thousand supplying a big car plant. Exactly, exactly. But um, obviously, you know, you're you're very closely involved in the UK educational system. What do you think the biggest challenge for engineers coming out of university and going into the automotive industry is at the moment? Would you say? I think one of the things I work with with the um, with the university I spend the time with is that. We train engineers to think and operate with the standard models and the standard technology, etc. It's very different now when you come out. We live in a culture of grants and acquiring money and projects and consortiums, etc. 
when we talk about APC and we talk about Faraday, et cetera, they all want consortium work. They want bids written. They want project plans written. They want accounts done. An engineer now who graduates and comes out of university, the old days you just went into a department of 30, 40 engineers and you just learned your trade. Yeah. If you now go into an SME or something like that, that's not the situation. You have to become much more multitasked. You have to think a lot more about how a project's run, how does government think, where's the funding coming from, how do I work with the university? So you have to be technically skilled now, but you have to be aware skilled, and you have to have new skills. So I'm, I'm pushing a lot in the university that before an engineer graduates and comes out, they need a course on how do you write a bid? What are gateway questions? What is the words that tick the box? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? And I think one of the biggest challenges is not, not having people technically ready, but that is a challenge because mechanical engineers now have to have a much higher level of electrical knowledge, et cetera, and chemical knowledge. So there's a lot more general degrees coming out where people have to learn chemistry, electrical, electronics, mechanical, as opposed to pure mechanical, pure, et cetera. But also giving them that more um, economic awareness as well, business awareness, not just MBA type things, deep down into what they'd be expected to do in their new role. I think with that, though, uh, just from the outside looking in and, you know, you know, um interested to see your thoughts but when it's becoming a a bit more generic like this and you know they have to learn so many different areas does that not sacrifice the the true niche specialists that we have in the market these days where somebody you know will will really hone in on one specific area and forge a career in that i think i think we have to offer this is this is one of the things we discuss on the industrial engagement board (laughs) there are people who will want to do um electrics or chemistry then do masters then they want to do a phd and they want to become researchers we have to cater for them because we badly need them yeah what i was involved recently on a zoom with three government ministers and one of one of the things i said was there used to be a clear route for people like me who failed at school did an ordinary national or whatever But the old polytechnics used to allow a part-time degree. Those people who are in work, who are in their 20s or 30s, who've not succeeded, or they did A-levels, but they didn't do a degree or whatever, who suddenly realize they want to upskill into the degree level, it's really hard to do that. And I was interested that the Prime Minister announced that if people want to do that, they should be able to get a grant or a loan to do it. Mm-hmm. The people those in that category, which the country needs, are not going to, I would not think, will go on to become pure researchers. So if somebody is in a company now and they want to upgrade to a degree for promotion or to learn more, they will be more generalists. So we have to be able to cope with the need, we need generalist engineers, but we also need those who are going to be moved from engineering, I would say, to science. Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge for the universities, how they do it, because the Faraday PhD 
students, I would class them as they're not engineers, they're scientists. They're moving into the science of developing new chemistries, new structures, etc. So we have to cope for both, I'm afraid. And it's going it, it's some in the football parlance, some are going to be strikers and some are going to be squad players. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to be uh, going to be once again very interesting to see how it pans out. I think we're at a very uh, pivotal point in the um, in the electric revolution, really, at the moment, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next 10, 20 years. But uh, for my final question, then, uh, if I could, if you could give one piece of advice to any automotive professional or anybody looking to forge a career in the automotive industry, what piece of advice would you give them? If you're in the mode of denial, and I meet people in denial, that electrification is coming, get out of that denial now and accept it. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. But uh, yeah, it's been really, really great to chat to you today. Um, Really appreciate you taking the time out to come and join me today, Colin. So, uh, So thanks a lot. My pleasure. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Careers in Automotive. If you've enjoyed this episode or enjoy the series, please could I ask you to leave a review of the podcast and also like and share it with anybody that may be interested. This will just help me read the widest audience possible. Thank you very much.